Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Fahad Rahman is the co-founder and CEO of Lumi Health. In this episode, we talk about what personal events led him to build Lumi Health, what is polypharmacy or combination medication therapy, and how it costs the healthcare systems billions of dollars, how pharmacists can save the system money and optimize therapy, why strengthening the relationship between the clinician and patient leads to better outcomes. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Fahad, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for coming on. I'm really excited about this episode. So Fahad, for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Fahad Rahman, uh, co-founder, CEO of Lumi Health. At Lumi, what we're doing is we work with uh, physicians and clinicians to improve medication therapy for patients that have a common, a complex medication. Uh, sorry, I dropped the ball on that. We we help improve medication therapy for patients that have a combination of chronic conditions. Um, you know, just by way of background, I've done a lot of work in healthcare innovation, uh, both in technology and services. And with the, the startup that I've been co-leading uh, for the last few years, we've really gotten deep into the clinical workflow to uh, to address the polypharmacy problem that older patients have and in managing a complex regimen of medications. Yeah, polypharmacy is very near and dear to my heart as some people know I am a pharmacist, but uh, for those who don't know what polypharmacy is, do you mind giving us a background, like a little description of what that is? What that is? Yeah, absolutely. So think of polypharmacy as, um, think, of, think of an aunt, an older aunt, or maybe a parent or a grandparent that you have, and they'll be on a complex regimen of medications. They'll have multiple different pill bottles and times and doses and all those different things. But that's really what polypharmacy means. It means taking combinations of medication therapy to improve overall health. Yeah. And then the interesting thing about polypharmacy is there's no real definition that people have. It's constantly changing, right? Like when I was in school, it was, you know, on multiple medications for a disease state. Well, that's kind of thrown out the window when you're in hypertension. Then it's like more than five meds. Well, if somebody has diabetes, hypertension, and, and you know, and, you know, car, cardiac, if they had even a cardiac surgery, they're on like six, seven medications right off the bat. So it's kind of funny how it's such a huge problem, but yet we don't know what the actual definition is. And I think that's one of the reasons why we can't solve it either. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's happened is that, you know, some people might call, call it medication management, they might call it combination medication therapy, which is really the term that, that we prefer, because that's the most descriptive and the least jargony. Polypharmacy is also a commonly, people think it means going to multiple pharmacies, which is also part of the problem, yeah, too. So in an interesting way, it's a double entendre. But really, what's happened in healthcare, and, and the way that we access healthcare is it's highly specialized. So people go in, for a very specific, you know, you have a knee problem, you go to an orthopedist, you have a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist. And our medications are doled out that way too. But when you think of a human, a human is not the sum of their problems. A human is really 
just a person that has multiple different organ systems and physiological and symptomological issues. And combination medication therapy, when done right, is actually supposed to help improve overall healthcare and overall outcomes for the patient. And, and unfortunately, that's just not happening today because of uh, various degrees of specialization and discontinuity we have in how we deliver care. So it is a term that I think people have not really thought deeply about, but when you think about it intuitively, when you put all the medications in a patient, you should ultimately get an improved outcome um, in their health and their experience. And unfortunately, as a, as a pharmacist, you know this better than I do, that it really doesn't work that way today. Unfortunately, no. I mean, I've been, I'm not, I've been there when, you know, medications are added onto a patient for a side effect for another medication. And then you, and you're, you're kind of going through the profile and you're like, and you're thinking like, have they tried not this medication, tried something <laughs> else or whatever. And I brought it up sometimes, and this is no slight to anyone, right? I mean, this is why we're do why we are where we are, you know, that's our job to double check these things. And I asked them, I'm like, Hey, do you, have you guys tried this other medication? And they're like, Oh no, we haven't. Does that have the same, uh, does that have the same side effects? No, it, well, it doesn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just put them on that. What's the dose? <laughs> oh, um, it's, it's this uh, twice a day. Okay, perfect. Uh, we'll just put them on that one. Uh, and it, but, but the thing is, if you don't have pharmacists intervening or somebody intervening at that point, then that medication, that person is now on a medication that is causing them side effects and also another medication that can cause them side effects, but it's taking care of the side effects of the first medication. And that to me is kind of like polypharmacy It's like, it's, it's, um, mismanagement of your medication. What's the word I'm looking for? I can't even think of the word I'm looking for, but basically it's not op optimizing. You're not optimizing your therapy. And to me, that's what kind of what, for me, that's the definition I've made up for myself. <laughs> no, it, it's really interesting. So just kind of expanding on, on a little bit of my background and some of how we arrived at trying to solve for this problem that we see out there. Um, one, you know, the, the inappropriate implementation of medications in patients, which is like just kind of the, the really non-jargony way to say this, is the single biggest um, improvement opportunity in healthcare that we see and that we see in the data. What we mean is that if we change nothing in healthcare, not didn't build another hospital, didn't, you know, create another insurance company or new medical device, if we just actually um, dosed and properly managed the medication therapy for patients, um, we would probably save anywhere from 300 to $500 billion a year, it's billion with a B, uh, probably save about over 125,000 lives. And by the way, would improve cost uh, reduction and outcomes in the most costly conditions like cardiac disease and hypertension and diabetes and COPD and a whole host of other conditions that drive the disproportionate amount of spend in this country and are now driving more and more spend in parts of the developed and developing worlds. Because as you look at these, you know, what, what are called conditions or diseases of the rich, diabetes, cardiac disease, hypertension, typically are, are co-present with increased uh, prosperity in societies. So the, the, but, but that aside, the, it, my own experience with this has been kind of twofold. So one has been, um, I've done a lot of work in healthcare, um, particularly around healthcare technology is where I started. But then I work with Geisinger Healthcare System, which is an integrated delivery network or hospital system um, that's focused on population health type care, value-based care, which is kind of the, the, the common term these days for, um, for large population sets. And they've done a great job of tech enabling that and, and driving clinical care models to improve 
um, overall outcomes across large population sets, across large challenging conditions. And, um, and I was part of their innovation practice and used to actually teach other hospitals how to become more like a Geisinger or a Mayo or a Kaiser. You know, these are kind of the preeminent um, integrated delivery systems in the country among, among many others. And uh, we would teach these health systems about a lot of different things. But one of the areas that I found that there wasn't a tremendous amount of innovation in, which was an area that my dad was actually struggling with at the same time um, as a patient who has heart failure and hypertension and diabetes. And this is a, you know, my dad is like highly technical, um, very compliant with his, you know, doctor's visits, works out religiously multiple times a week for like the last four decades, eats properly, goes and gets all of his labs done. But the most confounding part of his entire healthcare um, trajectory uh, has been this combination medication therapy he's been on for all these different conditions. And what I found ultimately through the personal experience of my dad and seeing that, and then also the systems level experience I had working, you know, in restructuring large health systems around these paradigms was that the, the model today is one of trial and error, right? So it kind of goes to like the example that you gave. So, you know, what happens is typically physicians will try a medication out on a patient and then they'll see if it works or not. And, you know, usually they'll see that patient after three or six or 12 months, and then they'll make some adjustment. And oftentimes what ends up happening is these patients have multiple different medications for their multiple different conditions. And guess what? The different physicians that are managing or co-managing this patient's overall health are also not collaborating and communicating. So, so, so the point is not that doctors are, are bad. They're actually really good at their job, but this is a very complicated area that involves a lot of information sharing, a lot of knowing what the latest protocols are, a lot of knowing about what's actually happening to the patient, for example, when they are having a, a, an adverse reaction and what the signals and signs of that look like. So it is actually an area that's ripe for improvement. And, um, and that's really what we're doing at Lumi Health is trying to help physicians and clinicians in general improve how they identify those improvement opportunities. And then more importantly, how they implement them and then how they measure the efficacy of um, improvement, both symptomologically and physiologically with those patients. So we do it as part of a, a tech-enabled service that we offer, which includes um, a technology layer that we've created for medication recommendations. And then uh, pharmacists are integral to the model. Um, so we actually have those have pharmacists on our team and then devices to, mon to manage and monitor biomarkers of what's actually happening to the patient at home. I mean, imagine how novel that is, right? We're going to change blood pressure in a patient, but we're not going to measure blood pressure change at home in any meaningful way in our decision framework. That's kind of how it is today. So we integrate all these different components and then provide highly leveraged clinical insights to the physician in terms of what to do next. And it's a continuously iterative process um, that that needs to happen. You know, they're, these patients, they're not getting any healthier over time. Their disease is only moving in one direction, and that means it's getting worse. And, and the disease burden is increasing, which means the medication therapy will continue to evolve and change. Um, they're never going to be in a position where they're going to get off of all their medications. That's that's unlikely to happen with many of these conditions that we're we're looking at that are uh, known as the chronic conditions. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that people that it's so weird. So we live in you know everything in healthcare is specialized, and there's good and bad with it. The good is you're specialized, you know what you're doing in that specific specialty. But then the bad with it is when you have multiple conditions that require specialists, now you're seeing multiple specialists. And a lot of times they don't want to step on each other's toes and the, the communication break, breaks down, right? Like, you know, they're like, hey, call the, 
call the cardiologist or call this or, you know, hey, next time you go see your cardiologist, tell them that you started this or whatever, right? And patients already got a lot of things going on. The, the clinic's got a lot of things going on. Some The ball gets dropped and no, the, the conversation never happens. And then the patients are on multiple medications. And then like six months later, they come in for their visit and like, oh, didn't we tell you to stop that? Oh, we thought you were off this. And that's why you kept increasing your dose on this other thing. And it's just like, and it's, and it's a common occurrence. And it's, and like you said, it's no fault of anyone. It's just the system is so, it doesn't, it's not meant to, it's not meant for collaboration. I guess that's the easiest way of putting it. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of depends, right? So in areas that we collaborate well on, they're typically very time bound, right? So for example, patient comes in to the ER, um, lots of really good real-time collaboration there. If there's an emergency, somebody, God forbid, has a heart attack, you have the team comes together. When we're thinking about oncology, there's a lot of team-based care that happens there. But these are typically like very index events or conditions that have limited time for intervention, right? So you really need to kind of, and then by, by definition, it, it leads to a certain level of specialization. But outside of those things, I totally agree with you. You know, like we, we, we have um, a lot of different players on the team in healthcare, but we also have a kind of, a, it's kind of ironic, uh, not very good collaboration models um, when it comes to certain areas. The other thing that we think about is that medications are just an addendum to a lot of healthcare experiences. So you go and have a surgery and there's some medications. You ended up medications, you know? You got a new diagnosis and there's a new medication. But really medications are like the only continuous part of healthcare that goes home with the patient, right? People are not self-administering like IVs to themselves, right? Or doing like, you know, self-administered, you know, monitored knee surgery, right? But what they're doing is every day they're taking a really, really big part of their healthcare. Um, into their own hands. And the fact that we're not really monitoring or guiding patients in a meaningful way and learning from those experiences is actually a huge missed opportunity. And that missed opportunity is coming up in the statistics that we're seeing, you know, and these statistics are actually not getting better. So we're actually, so one of the things that happens with, um, with the patients that we're focused on, we actually started off with heart failure patients. And one of the reasons for that is I know a lot of people with, with heart failure, like my father, the other reason is that the, the Journal of America, uh, the American College of Cardiology, which is like the preeminent scientific, um, the ACC, the scientific authority within the cardiology space in the United States, says that 99% of heart failure patients in the United States are not on evidence-based um, medicine, medical therapy. And what that, particularly around the four classes of medications that they need to be on. So, so the way to break that down is the standard of care for heart failure in America today is four classes of medications. And patients in America are either not on the right medication or not at the right dosing or frequency for those medications based on what the existing literature says. So one of the things that we're really trying to do here is say, why does that exist? And how do we actually solve for that problem? And giving doctors more alerts and different things to chase is not gonna be a winning solution. We've heard of things like alert fatigue and burnout and guess what? Those things are getting worse, right? They're not getting better um, for a number of reasons. So the question is, you know, always about what type of collaboration is actually going to be beneficial. So one of the things that we really thought deeply about is who can we introduce into the mix that's actually going to be able to work with physicians, but also give them more insight into an area that they just don't have that much time spending on, uh, that they're not spending as much time on and may have not as many resources or insights into. And that's really where the role of the pharmacist came into in our model, which is that 
you know, just telling doctors, hey, doctor, you're missing this one and you're missing that one. And there's this other thing and you have alerts that are being kicked out of some technology platform is a surefire way to, to just alienate you know, your, your physician customers. So that's, we really thought deeply about what's the collaborative model to go to your earlier comment that's actually going to be working. And then how do we actually operationalize that um, to get buy-in from physicians um, using a non-physician clinical resource that we feel is highly, highly underutilized. Pharmacists have so much training. By, by definition, they're experts in medication, and they have a lot more value to provide to us than just dispensing your pills at Walgreens and giving you the pamphlet of like side effects um, in, a, in a maybe a 60-second or 90-second encounter. There's so much more that pharmacists bring to the table, and, and that's one of the things that we're unpacking right now. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. I'm sure people. <laughs> I hope you would. <laughs> a little biased, but yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think that that's one thing that we can do. And that's one thing that we should be doing, honestly. It's not even what we can do. We should be doing all these things. It's just, I mean, there's that's there's a lot to unpack there from the pharmacist side. Um, but yeah, I mean, you guys talked about, you guys create. So there's three main things that you ta- you said that like, Lumi Health is doing. You're providing recommendations. Uh, you have the pharmacist as part of the collaborative the collaborative team, you kind of mentioned why that's so important, but I'd like to get into the recommendations part. So are you guys, how does that work? It's a, it's a great question. So we think about, so this kind of goes back to a lot of, um, my, my co-founder and I both worked at Geisinger actually. And one of the things that we found that was really good about what Geisinger did was that they were um, really early adopters of ambulatory care management. So ambulatory care management, meaning using nurse care management um, uh, team members, as well as uh, non-licensed um, uh, uh, health coaches and community health workers in a collaborative model with physicians to basically have everybody practice at what's called the top of your license, right? So getting people to work within their scope of experience and not doing something that's, you know, that, that, that somebody else could handle. And that sort of work segmentation is particularly important. That actually drives into the way that we actually build recommendations. So one of the things that we've actually thought uh, deeply about at Lumi is, you know, just throwing a pharmacist onto the team doesn't actually solve for the fact that right now there aren't systems out there that we saw at least that are deep workflow systems around improving medication, improve, you know, identifying the medication improvement opportunity and then providing recommendations. So one of the things that we see is that there are pharmacists being used in a variety of medication contexts. And a lot of that actually has to focus on looking for broad-based like errors or things to medications that should not be co-prescribed or looking for areas where, you know, drug X costs, you know, $1,000 and drug Y, which kind of does a similar thing, costs $100. So how do we actually just go to the $100 drug, right? And th- that's called drug-drug substitution, or in the other cases called adverse drug reactions. Where we actually found was the the untapped opportunity was the clinical improvement. So surprise, surprise, right? Like we're looking at medication improvement opportunities and we don't have systems out there that are actually looking for clinical improvement. So the way that we do this is we, is primarily the reason why we work with physicians. First of all, in order to do something that has a clinical imperative, you have to be working as close to the physician as possible because that's the locus of clinical care in the United States today. You know, insurance companies are not driving clinical care and you have other players that are kind of supporting it, but really where you're working is the, is the physician. So what we do is we do a few things. We source data about the patient and, you know, what medications are on their doses and those sort of things to understand what their medication profile looks like today. The interesting thing is that EMR, electronic medical records, 
are usually missing, you know, 20, 30, up to 50% of the medications that a patient is on. So another way to say that is that even the doctor doesn't know all the, the, the medications a patient is on because those, those patients, those medications could reside in two, three, four different EMRs based on how many physicians this patient goes to and how much information they're voluntarily sharing with you. If you've ever been to a doctor, the first thing they ask you is what, you know, how are you feeling today? What did you come in for? What medications are you taking? Right? And so if you have a memory misstep, which often happens, you know, with the, with the best of us, um, you, you, there may be a medication that's never actually documented. So we're, we're pulling in medication, historical medications, but we're also then using rules and workflows to identify um, how we can do a much deeper under the history of the medication therapy. So that's actually how the system works. For example, it takes the medication therapy that a patient's on and then helps guide the pharmacist to inquiring more and more about the different medications that a patient might take. That, that could be a medication reconciliation workflow. The other thing that it's doing is, is running those medications against all the, all the research and all the personalized care guidelines that are out there, which is like really complicated to do. And we haven't found a system that does that today, really, in any meaningful way. EMRs um, are not built to do that type of work. So then it's identifying, okay, well, these are the medications a patient's on. These are where those doses or those, you know, uh, frequencies are not based on the research guidelines. So we need to tighten that up. Here are some of the medications that, here's some of the areas that we might need to investigate to find out if there's missing medications. And then here's what the potential adverse interactions of some of these medications could be or opportunities to identify a better alternative. And so that's kind of the starting point. And then how it works continuously is when a medication change is identified, we due diligence that. Um, so think of it like, you know, really smart navigational system, like Waze, like the navigational, um, the, the car or Google Maps, but then not having that system drive the car itself, right? So the pharmacist comes in as the driver, like any one of us using Google Maps or Waze would come in and say, eh, I don't agree with that right turn, right? It might be more efficient, but it looks like it's cutting through somebody's backyard. That's not the right one to take. Or I don't want to go off the ramp, off the highway and get back onto it. So we allow for a tremendous amount of user um, uh, autonomy and rely on the pharmacist's capabilities and understandings to then inform how those recommendations come in. And then ultimately a recommendation is provided in the EMR to the, to the physician in their workflow. So that way their experience is totally seamless. So even though we use technology on the back end and a combination of human and technology, um, what we're doing for the clinician the, of record is actually making it as seamless into their workflow today. So that way they can respond way, way faster. And then the last piece of what the recommendations, uh, the recommendation engine does is it integrates data from the blood pressure cuff and weight scales and other devices that we put out with patients. Because going back to like a clinical decisioning paradigm, if you're gonna change somebody's blood pressure and you change it, you, you identify a medication improvement opportunity and then you implement it. Well, you know, one of the things they might wanna be looking out for is how is your blood pressure looking over the next few days? Because usually medication risk and adverse reactions show up relatively early in the patient's journey of taking a new medication. You know, you don't have to wait like three months to see an adverse drug reaction or an impact. You can typically see that relatively easily through a combination of symptoms and physiological feedback. So um, just wanted to give a little bit of content. I didn't want to get deeply technical into how it works, but more give you a sense of, and, and your listeners a sense of how it works, plays out and, 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 and what the value of having this full stack approach really is. I love it. Um, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, I think that's good. And I, and that's what you're, what you're saying is how 
in my eyes, the medical model should work, right? You like we keep specializing more and more and there's so many drugs coming out. You cannot expect uh, doctors and physicians to know every single thing that's out there. Like, you know, you know, a lot of teaching hospitals work this way as well, right? They, like the, aren't they supposed to? No, I'm just kidding. I totally <laughs> agree with you. It's too much. It's too much infrared cognitive overload. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. A lot of teaching hospitals work the same way, like where they have the physicians, they do the diagnosis and rec recommend what medications there are. The pharmacist over, looks it over, double checks it, adjusts, uh, makes their recommendations to the physician. And they usually just say yes, because they trust us. And then, you know, and you, because there's a lot of things that happen, right? Like there's a lot of times where, like you kind of mentioned, doses are not optimized. They just throw on a second medication. And, you know, many times we're like, well, you can go up on the dose on this one, see how it works. And then we can throw this on. Let's not just throw on the second one right away. And, you know, it might not be the right medication for their specific condition. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we can do. And again, I mean, this is bringing a smile to me. People probably wonder, people probably don't have to guess you know, why, why we brought a bot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but the other, other part that you guys are doing is the device side. So are you guys, do you guys like partner with device companies? Do you guys, uh, do, do you guys provide the patients with the devices? How does that work? It's a great question. So no, we're not in, we, we don't build devices ourselves. Um, we, we work with third parties that are already building really, really good clinical grade devices. And one of the things that's happening right now is we have, um, a lot of devices that are, that have already been implanted in patients and cardiology is one of those areas where you have a number of implanted devices like defibrillators and pacemakers and, and so on. Uh, but then we have this movement around peripheral devices, right? So your smart connected blood pressure cuff and your smart glucometer to measure blood sugar or your smart weight scale, which, you know, a lot of people use even for non-clinical purposes, right? They want the pretty app and the graphs and stuff like that. But what ends up happening is a lot of that data that we see out there, and it's really, really good signal uh, data, right, that you're getting. For example, imagine if you're only going to the, to the doctor once every six months, which is typical for like a Medicare patient, you know, sometimes once every three months. But for the rest of us, we're typically going in once a year, if that frequently. So your doctor has one blood pressure reading with you if you're going for 12 months. If you're going for three months, which is like the most frequent interaction that typically somebody has with a physician, you know, barring some, some other uh, condition, your doctor has an amazing four blood pressure readings from you, right? So not a very good way, and weight readings and so on and so forth. So not a really good way to influence, use these biomarkers to influence clinical decision-making. So what we do is we actually handle the full scope of getting, identifying the patient if they're, if they're appropriate for a, a device, shipping the device to them. So it goes directly to them, provisioning them on the device, getting them to use it, and then looking at the data feed that's coming in. And that's just the upstream part, right? Now we have the data. So the question really is, and so there's all a bunch of devices that have been out there for many, many years. Uh, but what we find is that that data is actually not getting in, in influencing a decision model, a clinical decision mo model or a patient care decision model. So another way to say it is we're not out there giving devices looking for problems to solve. We've identified the problem that we're solving, which is the, 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 the combination medication therapy for certain conditions and certain classes of medications, having the blood glucose value or having the, the weight um, or having the blood, uh, blood pressure or a combination of these three and you know, blood oxygen saturation and so on and so forth is insanely helpful to understanding the clinical decision that needs to be made. So what we do is we look at the clinical decisions that need to be made and say, which biomarkers 
do we need and which ones can we actually get by using peripheral devices? And then, then we put those devices out with the patient. So right now we've actually started with blood pressure because 80, I think roughly 86% of patients that have heart failure also have um, high blood pressure. So they, they, these are, these are traveling buddies and uh, uncontrolled blood pressure can actually impact the, the cardiac disease progression. So it's a very, very interesting biomarker for us. And, and then what we do is we take that data. And now, for example, we're getting 91% um, of our patients are sending us a blood pressure reading every day. So that's like the sort of alert that we're not sending to the doctor, right? Because they just, they, they're, they're, their whole EMR would just be blasted with like alerts, you know? And what we find is that, so we have parameters and the evidence basis of what those ranges should be like, or patient-specific parameters based on this specific patient is is normal in these ranges and more more potentially in risk in these other ranges. So we take those readings and now it informs the decisions that need to be made around the polypharmacy or a rising risk event. So the other thing that we're also doing for our customers, and we've done this in a number of scenarios, is outside of the medication therapy management, we're looking for is weight and blood pressure trending in a direction that maybe shows that there's some sort of cardiac event that's happening or high risk event that needs to be intervened on. There have been times where we've um, actually, and, and there's no medication improvement opportunity for that. That could be like an underlying risk that could put somebody in the ER or worse. And so we're also looking for those sort of trajectories and trends. And it gives our patients a ton of comfort because now they're like, wow, I have a team that's monitoring me and calling and following up on me. And, and that creates a whole different sort of relationship with patients. When we talk about patient engagement, that's like an insane amount of patient engagement that we're getting just by putting a device out there and following up. 100%. And I think when people really um, underestimate the value of trends, you know, kind of you, you mentioned, you kind of said in tongue in cheek, but you know, even if you see them three months a year, it's four readings. If they, let's say if they do it twice, max eight readings of blood pressure, right? And that's a, I think people really, we see hypertension, diabetes, all these things as lifestyle diseases, right? Because we've gotten to a point where we can control it to a certain point, but it's killing people, right? It's it's like people are dying because of these diseases and we really need to take care of them when we can. And when we don't have trends, like for example, like, you know, I've seen this many times where patients like, oh, you know, I have really high blood pressure in the morning, but then over time it gets fine. And like, you're thinking like, well, we don't know that. We have nothing to back that up with. Like, you know, we don't know if you're saying, but like, if you have constant trends coming in, you can see that, hey, at 7 a.m., his blood pressure is really high. What are you doing? Then you can ask pointed questions be like, hey, what do you do every morning at 7 a.m.? And then you come to find out like, oh, you know, he's, they're doing this, this, and this. You're like, oh, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you should stop that. Boom. You don't even have to increase the medication, right? <laughs> you know, what a thought, right? Like, hey, you know, I mean, like, those are things. And I've seen that happen, like where, you know, a patient was really diligent about taking their blood pressure whenever they felt like it. And, and then we were able to trace it back to activities that they were doing. And we told them to kind of slow down or stop. And they were fine after that. And their blood pressure medication was actually decreased uh, in, the, in, that, in that person's case specifically. But it's amazing, right? Like what data can do. And the other thing, I mean, I'm sure you know this, like there's just so much data out there in healthcare that it's just not even utilized. It's just... Like you, like you mentioned, it's just noise. It's just noise because we don't know how to use it properly and also present it properly. I, I think you're spot on. You know, so so we so we use this term internally, and it's called um, the accountability framework. And it's just kind of a term we you know we use loosely. And what ends up happening is 
So we disproportionately take care of patients that are older. Our median age is, I think, roughly around 73, 74. Our patients are, because they have heart failure, they have a number of the other chronic conditions. So they typically have between four to six chronic conditions. But, you know, around 15% of our patients typically have nine or 10 chronic conditions. Um, so we there's a lot of disease burden in these patients, you know. And some of these patients, because they're older, they're lonelier, which is one of the biggest reasons for Con, you know, continuous decline in health is people just feel lonely and they don't feel like somebody's caring for them. So I, I tried not to lead with this when we were talking, but really what we do is we bring in a framework where we're actually talking and engaging the patients in a manner that um, helps them uh, appreciate the care that they're receiving and feel cared for. And so we see actually some of these, some of these, like, I'm just kind of, I was laughing and smiling when you were walking through these examples, because oftentimes the blood pressure problem, for example, and many of these problems that we talk about is not a function of the medications are, are not effective or the patients don't know what to do. It's that that relationship between clinician and patient has really kind of frayed over time, right? And so what ends up happening is when somebody, and we see this in the data, and I, I, I'm not going to say anything for attribution, obviously, because of HIPAA, but I'll give you an example. Sometimes We'll have patients that'll take a blood pressure reading in the morning, and then and then they take a blood pressure reading two two hours later, and their blood pressure is lower because you know what they decide what they remembered is that I took the reading, I hadn't taken my medications on time probably, I don't want you know the Lumi folks to be following up and being <laughs> worried, and they say this to us, so they give us another reading because we actually have an alert scheme where a, a trigger comes in, and then we have to do a follow up with that patient to figure out what's going on. But because they know that that relationship exists, they actually have a, a, a framework of accountability now with our with our um, with our clinical team. And you know, one of the reasons, one of the ways that works is we're not using a call center model, right? We actually it, there's one pharmacist and one nurse dedicated to each patient. So obviously, they take care of more patients than one, but each patient gets calls from pharma, a pharmacist and a nurse that they know by name, and they know probably. Some some element about their life. So what ends up happening is they sometimes they look forward to those conversations, right? And uh, but they also have a level of accountability with them now over time, where they're doing that extra walk, or they're you know doing the low sodium diet, or they have some questions and they lob those into our team even beyond going to the clinic because they know they can get in touch with our people quicker. You know, at the end of the day, Zane, like a lot of these problems are not about creating new science or creating some crazy technology that's going to like remove all these other problems. Maybe some other areas are, but for these like high cost, high disease burden, chronic conditions, the solutions are relatively simple. We already have the research and the data and the know-how. It's about actually how to get the patients to engage in a model that's and, and engaging clinicians in a model that can actually be beneficial to both without putting adverse burden on either one of them. And that's a really, really difficult thing to do when you see like the growth in quality measures and the growth in compliance and all these different things that come that are trying to solve very discrete aspects of a problem, but on a, compo on a composite basis, they actually are not moving the needle, right? If you saw anything that happened recently, I think in the ACO REACH program, which is the Accountable Care Organization um, program that's been launched by Medicare over many years and the latest version of it, they actually removed a lot of the quality measures because I think what they started realizing was that the requirements for reporting were getting greater than the requirements for delivering better care. And that might be, you know, I don't know what their thinking was, but that's one of the ways that we're inferring it. 
So I think some of this stuff is like what's old is new again, taking care of patients like actively is kind of your, your, the way to unlock um, improvement in their health and then improvement for the healthcare system. So, so we think about, about what you mentioned a lot, which is how to actually get folks on the right track without actually having to do a ton of clinical interventions on them. Because a lot of times you don't actually need to do a lot of clinical interventions. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, so much there, man. Uh, you kind of, you kind of tugged <laughs> at my heartstrings because everything you said is exactly what I love is because I think that we've come so far beyond accountability for the patients. It's like patients are kind of almost removed from their own care, right? They come to, they come to see the doctor and they're like, okay, well, you're going to be starting on this, this, this medication, because that's just the way our system has now become because, you know, they don't really have accountability because there's no one checking in on them. You're seeing everyone that wants to hear whatever you might fall off. No one's going to ask you about anything. And I think that once you start empowering patients or making them more accountable, they will get better because they know somebody's checking in on them. They know they also have, they're also empowered themselves, right? They're seeing their blood pressure going up. Like in your case, right? They saw the blood pressure high, like, oh man, I forgot my medication. Boom. Let's take my medication. Cause it's, it's empowering them, right? They're, it's not this like black box anymore. Like they're physically seeing the numbers. They're seeing it trend up and down and they know like, Hey, this, my blood pressure going up is not good. Okay. I did. I, did I miss something? Oh, I forgot to take my medications. And like, that to me is such a, there's such a huge component. And like, I always, I, I also tell people like, Hey, we need to go backwards to go forwards. Like kind of to your point, like we need to go back to building relationship because in the end, if you strip everything outside of healthcare, it's, it's just relationship building. That's all healthcare is because you have to take, you have to convince somebody that you don't know, like that's not your family member, right? You can't drag them, kick in, scream. Well, in some cases you might be able to, but let's not do that guys. But you know, you have to convince them to do something that they really don't want to do because they got to this point because of decisions that just were stacked on top of each other. Right. And healthcare is just building relationships and that's what it is. And it sounds like that's what you guys are doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really a big part of what we're doing. I totally, like, I totally agree with that, um, that, that philosophy and that sentiment. And I think that one of the most important relationships that people have, especially as they have, you know, conditions and they need help. I mean, heck, if I get like stung by a bee or something, the most important relationship for me at that point is with what urgent care is closest and the doctor that's going to take care of me, right? So we have this very, very personal, intimate relationship with our physicians, right? And and our clinicians broadly. And 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 that's really a, a foundational component of healthcare. And the other thing that's happened, I think, over time, and for example, in in the 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 combination medication therapy, um, space, I've seen this for a number of years. And it really kind of, I think a lot of this started about seven, eight, nine years ago when we started tracking data and we started looking at these quality measures. And you might remember this around medication adherence and so on and so forth. So there was a thesis that started developing that, you know, oh, this medication data looks really bad and these outcomes look really bad. A lot of the stuff that I mentioned earlier is that, you know, it revolves around a thesis that, you know, Effectively, I'll kind of give you the reductive version. Medications are amazing. You know, pharma companies are doing a spectacular job creating these really, really awesome pills. And doctors are amazing at dosing and prescribing those pills. And doctor and patients are just being negligent or irresponsible by not taking those medications, you know, on time as 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 um as instructed. And what we what that infers, what that you know, and assumes, which are incorrect assumptions, is that medications are really easy things, and you just pop one in, and it just works magically, and that doctors are errorless, and that these medications don't come in different forms and sizes and combinations, right? The reality is that 
they're highly specialized product products with highly physiologic, you know, specific physiological and system uh, symptomological reactions. Some are virtuous reactions and some are not. And then, um, and then doctors have a myriad of permutations to calculate to your earlier point, you know, what's the latest research say? What do the lab values of this patient say? What's their latest test results look like? Where are they at? How do they react to other things? And then all the medications are on and they can't compute all that. So doctors go by what, what their experience tells them, right? And so as we un, unbundle the complexity of this, um, I think patients for a long time, it felt like, oh my God, I've gotten to this point and and I'm only making it worse, right? I can't make it any better. And they feel your earlier point disempowered from their own care. And I think when you start working on the other aspects and the levers that can improve things for patients and then empower them with the things that they can actually move, right? I mean, giving somebody a med adherence app, um, which is great, like those are great tools without actually under addressing the underlying reason why they're not taking a specific medication because it makes them vomit or feel depressed or something, that's just a road to nowhere, right? So, so you know, somebody tracking their daily pills and then, but nobody being able to respond to that adverse drug reaction that you mentioned at the beginning, that's kind of like a broken system. And what we're, what, what we think is going to win ultimately in any area, regardless of this combination of medication therapy or anywhere else, is trying to attribute the right level of control to the different players in, in, in a given decision-making framework, and then being able to move all the pieces together to kind of achieve the objective. But like focusing on one area at the expense of not focusing on the other areas for improvement ultimately leads to like suboptimal outcomes that we have today, right? I mean, there's no way you could go into like complex surgery and say, well, you know, three of the people that need to be in the surgery, we're just not even gonna have in here. And one of the other people is not performing very well, but we're not going to equip them with anything better. And the patient better, like, just do a really good job of being a good patient today. Otherwise, it's not going to, I mean, like, we would think that that paradigm is horrendous, right? And and clearly, that's not how surgeries work. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's just an example of how we kind of treat some of these other areas that are not so obvious and not so urgent or high risk in a given moment. Um, and this extends to a lot of things that are happening outside of the hospital today. It's not just medications. There's a lot of healthcare being delivered outside of the four walls of a healthcare setting. And so we're gonna to have to contend with this more and more um, over the coming years. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I mean, um, I even like, I really struggle to use the word, this patient is not adherent because we don't know why they're not adherent. Is the medication too much for them? Are they not able to take it at the schedule? That there's like, like taking medication- Can they afford it, right? Yeah. I mean, if, let's, talk, let's be frank, let's talk about affordability, right? Can mm. they actually afford that medication? You know, or do they have to, you know, make pay rent or mm -hmm. pay their utilities, right? Rather than pay for like a medication that might cost them like what might seem like not a whole lot to a lot of people, but means a lot to them. You know, yeah, I've, had, I've had those conversations. I've worked in oh, the yeah. oncology space and I remember calling a patient after weeks of fighting insurance companies and this and that. We got it down to the copay down to $20 a month, called him super excited. They were the family was calling us every week, every couple of days. And I got on the phone right when I got the message, I called him like, Hey dude, got a really great miss. <laughs> I didn't say dude, I called him by his name, but Hey, got really awesome news for you. He's like, Oh, what happened? Um, and I was like, Hey, we got the, we got your medication approved. It's $20. And he flat out told me I can't afford that. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't afford it? Um, uh, I mean, I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And he's like, well, I have to choose between my family or my health. I'm going to choose my family over everything. Right. If, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but I don't want to leave my, with my, my family with nothing. 
And it really hit me that right then and there. Like for me, twenty dollars is nothing, right? You know, like we spend more money on lunch. You know, I'm very, very blessed. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, you know, you hear these stories all the time. Like, you know, like for I heard, you know, we've had stories where patients just didn't have time to get their medications because they had to go back to work. Because guess what? They don't have PTO. And every day they're off, they're not getting paid. So they need to go back to work. So they just didn't have time to get or, you know, the the single mom that has three jobs and she can't take care of herself, even though she wants to. But she also has to take care of her kids. I mean, these are realities that people live in that I don't think people really realize. And it's and it's something that I think that we as a system, I, I mean, I can talk about this for a long time, you know, health equity <laughs> and as social determiners of health. And a lot of people say that, oh, they're fixing that. We're fixing access. We're fi- doing all this. But like, what are you actually doing to do that? Right. I mean, but I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I can keep going, but I'll, I'll stop there. But I completely agree with you there. I mean, there's just so many factors involved in it and it's just so hard. And the, but the only way you're going to figure it out is by talking to them and reaching out to them and really understanding where they're coming from, what their story is. And that's, that, there's no magic box. There's no magic, anything like you literally, you have to have a conversation going back to what the hell is healthcare. It's a relationship. And in a relationship, you have to talk to each other to understand what's going on. No, absolutely. And, and, and uh, we feel really deeply about, you know, what's categorized as social determinants of health and, and, and other things, right? Socioeconomic co-present issues. What it effectively means is like, what are the situation and financial circumstances that somebody's in that may create like friction or lack of access to some of the things that are part of your solution set, right? Like, so to your, to your earlier point, it's like, well, you prescribed all these drugs and some of them are not being covered by insurance, which is like, you know, there's a whole issue around prior authorization, which is like a number of really, you know, interesting companies are looking to solve. And, and then there's downstream issues like, oh, great. You know, somebody's on medications, but they can't actually because they're on supplemental um, federal food benefits and the way that those, you know, the, the SNAP program works, the reimbursement, um, people are looking for the most calories per dollar they can get. And guess what doesn't give you a lot of calories per dollar? Broccoli and blueberries, right? So, so what do you go for? You go for the higher processed foods because, you know, calories per dollar, right? If you're looking to feed number of people in the family with these limited supplemental food benefits, then you have to basically stretch out your dollar as far as you can. So, so yeah, then now we've got the medications dialed in for the patient, but the, the food that they're eating is not ideal, right? It's leading to like further deterioration in their, you know, blood sugar and their diabetes and diabetes is like the mother of many, many bad diseases, right? Like chronic kidney disease comes from there. And we know how much that costs healthcare. If you don't, it's like one of the biggest cost drivers on a per capita basis. And, and all of these conditions that I mentioned, and it makes all these other conditions worse in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's, it, it really is. I mean, we really have to think holistically about how we think about patients. And that doesn't mean that one company needs to solve for everything, right? Maybe there are companies out there, maybe there are entities out there. I know um, there's a lot of health systems, including the one that I used to work for that's done a lot of work in this space about really comprehensively thinking about populations and comprehensively thinking about patients and all the way getting into food and nutrition. And there's other companies out there that are looking at housing. You know, some of these, some would ask, you know, maybe they're state functions versus like private functions. And that's a whole other conversation, but there are problems that need to be solved. And, and at some point, you know, you've got to figure out which problems you solve and then which problems you integrate to solve with others, or at least direct patients um, to the right resources so that those things can be addressed as well. Because, you know, you can do three out of seven things really good, but if the other four things don't get figured out, 
the the outcome doesn't get achieved, right? And that's like I think one of the things that we're struggling with today. And it's going to take us a little bit of time for these components to gel. Healthcare in America is like in a very very interesting place. I've been in healthcare for about 12, 13 years now, and I got to say that I'm more bullish about American healthcare than I've ever been in that trajectory. I've seen the Affordable Care Act come through. I was part of some various aspects of the implementation of that and you know, at the state level through Medicaid programs and with AC, uh, accountable care organizations in the Medicare space. And then I think people thought that was going to be the end of history, but that was actually the beginning of what we're experiencing right now. And we're in another stage right now, and there's probably going to be another stage after this. It's going to be an evolutionary process. And I think part of that evolution is going to involve a lot of what you said, which is like, what's old is new again, right? Like the relationships matter, the problems you're solving in that relationship matter able to apply in terms of improvement matter and how to how to how to impact those levers um i think those are all critical you know critical things to to for us to think about um especially coming out of a pandemic right i mean if the pandemic put a put a fine line on top of something it's like you know um there's a lot of care that's being delivered in a lot of places that we didn't think about before right and that's kind of changed um change our, our concept, I think, about how we actually engage with healthcare in, in, a, in a way that I don't think is going back. Yeah, no, I, well, it's glad to hear somebody's bullish on healthcare. A lot of us are very, <laughs> uh, I mean, but to your point, I, do, I, do you want me to say it another way? If we don't figure it out, it's probably going to bankrupt the economy at some point. I mean, it's a growing part, it's, gro it's growing faster than GDP, right? Yeah. It's a big part of um, uh, uh, the federal debt, not the deficit, but the debt in terms of Medicare and Medicaid as an aggregate spend bucket. I mean, we're approaching over three and a half trillion dollars in aggregate use healthcare spend. So I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but we almost have like an, an imperative to figure yeah. it out. I, agree, I mean, I agree with you. I think right. that however we fix it, I don't care what the thing is, but you know, as long as we're going in the right, and I, and I, and I do agree, I think we are going in the right direction. I think people are starting to understand what clinicians and people that were inside of the healthcare bubble we also do a terrible job of telling others what we're going through. And I think pandemic kind of opened the, the doors and now people are leaving, going to other things and showing people how it is. I think we're going in the right direction. We had, it's going to be, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think that's one thing that everyone needs to realize is, you know, as long as we're taking, as long as we're going net positive over time, we're going in the right direction. So, but no, man, I love, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's extremely necessary. I know we're coming up on time, but I do want to ask you one more question. So, you know, you've been in healthcare for a long time. You now you, you know, done various different roles. You know, what what advice would you have given yourself at the beginning of your career that you know, like, you know, everything that you know now? Like, what advice would you be like, hey, tell, tell Fahad 13 years ago? That's a good question. You know, it was a little serendipitous how I got my first foray into healthcare. So I was doing consulting work, um, non-healthcare based primarily. And a friend of mine who's a, who's a mentor and he used to be a boss previously, and he's, he's involved with my startup as well right now, um, recommended that there's this really interesting company out in upstate New York that does like really, really interesting data analytics. And they are going to be doing some stuff in, in the healthcare space that I should join them. And I'd never been, I'd never worked for a software company before it would be, and, and I was going to go in on the growth and business development side. I, if I were to tell from like 2010 what to do be like yes join that company because <laughs> that took me down a road that i could not have charted a path from and then that led to the other opportunities that came and 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 how things evolved if there's one thing without you know kind of 
just confirming that one decision that I made, which had profound implications for me and my kind of journey in into this space and and, and the journey that I currently have, is, um, I would say be open to new things. You know, one of the things that I think I felt, uh, and I and I don't mean to say that in some sort of esoteric way, but really what I mean is. It was a big, I was actually launching another startup at that time. It was like a totally non-healthcare space. It was mobile advertising. Literally, we used to put ads on vans, right? Like these white cargo vans that are running around and geo-track them and get, you know, kind of be the middleman between getting getting companies to advertise and then paying the drivers and that sort of thing. And that was my big idea, right, at the time, because I just used to see all these vans driving around in, in D.C. traffic. I live outside of D.C., but I think that really being open to that opportunity and being open to change has helped me kind of morph me into the startup founder that I am. And I think there's there's um, there's nothing more humbling than this experience of being a startup founder. You could think, you know, all this stuff about business and I did a lot of work in sales and did a lot of work in consulting and innovation. And then you got to start from the bottom. And I think that everybody, I would say um, people who are in healthcare should start thinking like startup innovators in that sense. like challenge all preconceived notions but be humble and also learn from people that have been in the space for a while or have been doing things that have been working because we're, we're at a point in healthcare right now where it's not necessarily that we need to create new things to solve existing problems the tools the research the know-how the devices the methodologies they're all kind of out there and you know, I, I don't think there's going to be like some massive profound insight that's going to come from some other industry that's going to massively change everything. But there's learnings that we can have from other industries and there's learnings that we can have from insiders. And I think whether you're like a professor in you know cardiology that's been doing this for decades or you're somebody who's graduating college, I think everybody needs to really think like an innovator right now in healthcare for the benefit of healthcare um, and, and really take those risks and and some of those things that that uh, that I made like. 13 years ago. <laughs> I, Otherwise, who knows? I probably would still be in just, you know, corporate consulting right now, doing something else. Yeah, I could not agree with that at all. I mean, I, I, I cannot agree with that more, what you just said. Uh, but where, if people want to reach out to you, if people, oh, you know, if people want to reach out to you guys at Lumi Health, and uh, we didn't even talk about the onboarding process. What is the onboarding process and what kind of customers are you guys looking for? So, um, so the customer segment that we're currently focused on right now are physician practices that ha are taking patient, uh, taking care of patients with, um, multiple chronic conditions. And, uh, you know, primarily those are either primary care practices or specialty practices like cardiology or, or pulmonology. Um, we're also interested in working with payers. So that's the next customer segment that we're working on because payers have so much of the fiduciary responsibility for taking care of these patients. You know, they're, they're really the ones that are providing all the payment infrastructure and the coverage and those sort of things. And payers are getting more and more as we see over time, deeper in the clinical de delivery and clinical efficacy models. Um, we have this new category or a newish category called pay providers, right? Where you can't even distinguish whether they're a payer or they're a provider and they actually have physicians and uh, ambulatory surgical centers and some are even buying clinics now. So that's how we bring patients on. We work directly with the physician. So our customer is actually the physician and the physician, the clinic itself. Um, we work obviously with the administrators as well because of the administrative and financial components. Everything we do is Medicare reimbursable and covered by Medicare. So that's how everything from the tech, the devices and, and, and the team that we offer. And it's usually at no cost to the customer themselves because 
it's incremental revenue um, that they they achieve and it's usually no or low cost to the patient so it almost sounds too good to be true but we actually wanted to have a niche where we could actually um, provide accretive revenue uh, to the to the practice to our customer and then provide you know at, at, at no or low cost to our customers customer which is the patient and and then bridge that gap as well so uh, where you can find us is www.lumi.health uh, we couldn't get the .com URL. So we, we, we got the dad health one, which, uh, which has served us well. And you can always reach out to me directly at uh, Fahad, F-A-H-A-D at Lumi.health. And if, um, are there any socials that you are frequent? Uh, not too much. I I'm, I'm our social media manager right now, and I'm not doing a very good job of it. We're <laughs> on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably where we're most active. Um, but we need to, we need to up our game. So if there's anybody that's good in that space, please, uh, by all means, reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I wish you guys nothing but the best. Um, yeah, thank you for your time, man. Yeah, this has been awesome, man. Thanks, thanks so much for having me on. I know you've had a lot of heavy hitters on, so I'm I'm, I'm glad you gave a little itty bitty startup like mine <laughs> so, some airtime. I, I love the I love the stuff that you put out there, and I really enjoyed the conversation we had. It was it was uh, it, it was just great. I felt like it was very organic, and and uh, I I enjoyed chatting with you. I mean, you are one of the heavy eaters. So, no, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Have a good evening.